0: Banning the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films, and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia.
1: Here we are, nerds or nerdettes, the 146th episode of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where Nick and I do solemnly swear that we will faithfully execute, being hosts of the Down and Nerdy podcast, and we will do our best of our ability to preserve, protect, and defend nerd culture.
2: I'm just taking a little bit of time to, like, breathe a huge-ass sigh of relief, because before we started recording, James is like, I know where I'm going to go with this. Trust me, pretty much James is giving me a spiel that a mother gives a child when they're about to get their first shot. Like, I'm like, oh shit, I know where he's going with this. Okay, we can breathe. Let's get Burger King and ice cream now.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I thought about it. I mean, it is Inauguration Day, so I thought about it and I was like, what if they had to take an oath like Joe Casada or Jeff Johns? What if they had to take an oath... Before they could actually become like the head of Marvel or head of DC Entertainment, what would that even be like?
2: I joke a do solemnly swear to. Make Spider-Man not suck? I don't know, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, Jeff Johns, solemnly swear that at some point, someday, down the line, I swear there will be a Green Lantern movie.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, Jeff Johns, who solemnly swear I will turn the DCEU around. <laughs> I, I, Joe Casada solemnly swear that there will be no more than 16 tie-ins for our next major arc.
2: I, I, Gary Dugan, do solemnly swear that there will not be 20 different Deadpool (laughs) spin-offs.
1: Um, uh, there's, I mean, there's just so many possibilities and, and then what happens if you don't live up to that oath? Or do you just get roasted on Twitter? Is that, is that the way we're going now? It's,
2: it's <laughs> in, impeachment through social media pretty much. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's just, everybody's telling you to delete your account or like delete your, your storyboards. <laughs>
1: Damn it! Now I'm a hashtag. Used to that used to be a good thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's somebody, you see, like Betty White is ha-
2: as a hashtag or is trending on Twitter. You're like, oh god! And you're like, okay, she's 95. She's not dead. Isn't that horrible
1: be- <laughs> though? That's yeah. the first place your mind goes.
2: <laughs> like nowadays, it's like when you see if you see like a Marvel hashtag or like a Marvel trending or a Joe Kasada trending or anybody at DC trending or whatsoever. It used to be like, oh, what exciting things do they have? Now it's like,
1: well, how did they fuck up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And every time I every time I see anybody trending, and I know they're over the age of seventy five, it's not. Oh, that's cool. It's oh god, no, no, please, no. And that's not the way it should be.
2: And without further ado, before we become our own hashtags and can become trending on Twitter for all the wrong reasons, let's introduce who we are. Of course, I'm the Merc with one arm, Nick Battaglia, and joined as
1: always by I'm James Witham. And man, I gotta tell you, we've got a pretty good guest this week.
2: Yeah, man, we're going back to the streets of Gotham. Actually, we're heading up to Wayne Manor this week as David Mazouz is going to be our guest. Of course, he plays Bruce Wayne on the show, and man, Gotham so far, you know, it returned this week, and it returned with a vengeance. You know, mayhem is about to take place in Gotham, and it's just a lot of the cool things that they have with Bruce as well, with the Corvallos and the whole Selena thing and just his relationship with Alfred it's just going to be interesting. and It's going to be a lot of fun to talk to David about that and just the direction they're taking Gotham in Season 3.
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, you've got the whole Jerome aspect to think about as well. There's just so much going on. We were talking off air about what was going on with Penguin. And, I mean, who better to ask than the guy that's playing a young Bruce Wayne? There's just so many questions rifling through my brain right now that I can't wait to ask him, you know?
2: And before you get to ask those questions, we do have a few other segments to get to, including, of course, Nerd News, which is coming up later on in the show. But right now, come up next, what we're reading. We're getting out two new comics this week. Find out what they are, what we're reading, comes up next.
1: This is Aubrey Sitterson, writer of the G.I. Joe comic for IDW Publishing, and you
2: are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. <laughs> Well, it's that time, nerds. We pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you know, I've gone first the past couple of weeks. Now it's your turn. What did you read this week?
1: Decided to go a little bit different, right? And head to the danger zone. And that is very appropriate this week. Trust me, because I decided to do a book that actually they're very excited about over at Action Lab. And that's Dollface Number 1. It's scripted and drawn by Dan Mendoza, lettered by Adam Woolen. Also, assistance on the story by Brian Seton. Now... Basically, Dollface, I was telling Nick that it's going to be really hard to review and describe this book, so the best thing I could do is kind of, instead of starting from the beginning, jump to the middle of the book a little bit, and a couple of characters in the book, uh, Emily and Ivan, okay, and basically, they're college students, and what they've decided to do is they found this, or uh, Ivan's found this program called the Necronomicon, okay, and... They've decided that with her doll-making skills to build a sex robot. Yes, you heard me right. They've decided that they're going to make a fortune Whoa. by building a sex ro- a, a sex doll, basically. Whoa, okay, so Necronomicon plus
2: sex dolls. Is this like some, you know, necrophiliac shit kind of okay, thing? Okay,
1: it's... No? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: um...
1: Think about Agents of Shield. This is really weird out there. <laughs> where to put this. Think okay. about um, what they do with Ada on Agents of Shield and how they 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 built her and she's very lifelike and she's got lifelike skin. Yada yada yada. It's kind of like that, but using this Necronomicon, it's almost like a uh, Ada meets Frankenstein. But built as a doll, like a literal doll kind so of thing. So it's like so it's like Frankenstein
2: meets Agents of Shield meets Puppet Master.
1: It's yeah, very much like that. And I mean, when you when you say doll, when I say doll, it's like you know action figures, how they have the joints, the elbows, and stuff like that, and you can kind of see. Yeah, it with the, it's she looks like that. Okay, okay. so that's, that's the best way that I can possibly uh, describe it. And her name is Lila, by the way. Not that that really matters that much in this book. Because it's very much a, uh, as The Rock would put it, it doesn't matter what your name is kind of scenario.
2: Well, I mean, she's a sex doll, so it's kind of like, what's your name? Whatever you want it to be.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and they they, they very much have taken that attitude when they were building her. (laughs) Let me me just say that I'm going to preface this, and I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, okay? I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. If you are easily offended... In general, or if you're not comfortable with overly sexual dialogue and a lot of heavy language, this is probably not the book for you. Because, (laughs) I mean, if you want to recall our interview with Aubrey Sitterson last week when uh, we were talking about nicknames that he wouldn't want, one of the nicknames that Nick chose is actually in this book. <laughs> yeah, fuck boy is actually in the book. No, <laughs> so, and I'm not kidding, okay? That is actually in this book. Now, not to say that it's not a very entertaining story, because it is, and there's something that goes on with Ivan in this book that I don't want to spoil, so when you read it, you kind of get the sense for yourself. Something There's something different about Ivan in this book and the way that he interacts with Emily when you're actually telling the story of the quote-unquote present day. Now, what Lila's trying to do is integrate herself into the world because now she's not no longer like a sex doll. She's a witch killer. She goes out and tries to kill witches and stuff like that, and she has like a kind of a, a radar for who a witch is and who isn't. So they do come across a witch. Things get a little out of hand, but then something happens, and again, I'm trying not to spoil parts of this book, so you can read it for yourself. Something happens that is a little bit unexpected and takes the story in a different turn because they're trying to find all the witches and they're trying to kill them all, basically, which, you know, hey, I guess that's a good thing, right? So they're trying to find all of them and they need a certain thing to be able to find them all because there's a section of this program missing to where they cannot find all the witches and they've found a way to fill that missing piece, but... It's because of something that happens midway through the book.
2: I'm just picturing... This is what I really want you to do. I want you to go to your wife and just have her read this and record her expressions as she's reading this.
1: Oh, God. I'm going to be honest, dude. I don't think she'd get past page five. (laughs) (laughs) Not that page five is like the be-all, end-all, bad page of this book. It's not. I'm not saying it for that reason. I'm saying it because... Uh, Pam, if you're listening to this, he's throwing down the gauntlet. It's uh I I am going to just say, I'm just going to say it cuz this is my opinion. This is not a book for ladies. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> it's really not. It's it's really not there. It it is funny in spots. But it's also awkward in spots, even for me. And I'm I'm no prude, but even for me it's like this is a little awkward in spots and it's meant it, I think it was meant to be written in a satirical way, right? So I don't, I, I would, I can't come out and say, oh, the writing was terrible. It wasn't terrible,
2: right? But if it's, but it's some, well, a lot of times, especially in writing, satire can be taken as serious, and it right. can, be, and it can be mistaken for that. It can cause people to be like, well, what the hell's going on, and everything else like that. So I understand where you're going with this.
1: Let me just say, I see what you're going for, over there at Danger Zone and Action Lab. I understand. I see exactly what you're going for. And I think that for what they're going for, they're doing it exactly right. I mean, if this is what, if this is the direction that they want to take and the, and the tone that they want to take with it, then they, then they definitely hit it out of the park for sure. Um, it just seems like, and I was telling you this off air, it's like, there's kind of a story, but it, it feels like in this first issue, it hasn't found its focus yet. And I think part of that is because, it needed, they need to tell the reader, okay, how they came, how Lila came to be, and a little bit of the backstory on this on this other witch that they that they met. We got a little bit of that going on as well. So, I think that a little bit of that is to blame for them not really having a set direction for this book in this first issue. But I mean, definitely they they, they go for the comic relief and they go for it hard.
2: So, how's the art in this, and what would you give this?
1: The art is, def- is is actually really good. I mean, especially for, I mean, you're talking about, you're trying to make her as much of a doll as possible, but she's still getting hit on by dudes because, the, you know, they built her to be a sex robot for a reason, so, or a sex doll for a reason. So, obviously, she has those certain physical characteristics, but the art is actually very, very good and very detailed. It definitely has a cartoon strip type feel to it at times, which I actually think lends itself to it, to trying to tell you, okay, this isn't a serious book. We're not trying to be, you know, win the next Eisner award here. We're trying to give you something that's unique and fun and different. And, and that they've definitely succeeded in that because the art very much lends itself to that.
2: I'm just waiting for the panel where, like, in an ER waiting room, and you see you have a guy who has, like, a nail on his head, and another that person has, like, bandages around their arm or whatever, and then there's just a guy with, like, a sex robot stuck to his dick.
1: I mean, trust me, there are problems that would necessarily, that would definitely lend itself to there being a hospital needed right? in this book, but... I'm not sure that that's an option for them, nor is it nor does it need to be an I option. Just, but the reasons for that are also explained in the book.
3: I
2: just I just don't understand guy I mean we're of course men, but I don't understand men wanting to put their dicks in something with has gears in it. like what the hell? <laughs>
1: like, I think this, the this less can't go wrong. I think the less we try to explore that, the better <laughs> because entries is a very dangerous territory there.
2: I mean if it comes with an uh, an owner's manual, don't fuck it. Like like don't. I mean I know we're men, we want to stick our dicks in everything, but I mean if it comes with an owner's manual, don't stick your dick in it, please.
1: <laughs> don't. <laughs> you have to be smarter than that. Let's just i um, that's all I'm going to say. You have to you have to consider certain things, okay? And things break down too. Let's let's not let's keep that in mind as well. <laughs> so with that Ah, it's so, it's so difficult to rate this book, so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna give it a pickup only because you almost can't not be a little intrigued about what's gonna happen next, just because, and the intrigue almost isn't to do with the story, it's almost more to do with, I gotta see what they do this time. You know, it's almost like you have to see how far they can push it in the next issue, and if if that appeals to you then then yeah you should definitely try try this book if it doesn't and you're and you want a really good story and you want good characters that you can relate to i don't see too many characters that anybody would be able to relate to in this book so just keep that in mind i mean it is it is it can definitely be a fun story i wouldn't discount it entirely but uh just keep all of those things in mind when you're thinking about uh, purchasing dollface number 1
2: well, well, that was a riveting review, James.
1: <laughs> hey, I, I haven't tap danced that much since the last time I saw Bing Crosby on TV. <laughs> Which is a long time that ago. That was a long time ago. Pull out but, the VHS tapes, boys and girls. <laughs> but I
2: mean, you know, speaking of things breaking down, I, of course, this week went to the Boom Studios and decided, you know what? I loved wrestling growing up. I haven't watched wrestling a lot since, you know, I got out of high school, really. But, you know, this whole new partnership that the WWE has with Boom Studios and doing these comics really intrigues me. So I decided to go with WWE, number one, of course, from Boom Studios. It's written by Dennis Hopeless, illustrated by Serge Acuna, colored by Doug Garbark, and letters are done by Jim Campbell. And I mentioned Breaking Down because this First issue deals with the breaking down of the shield and Seth Rollins turning on Dean Ambrose and Roman Reigns and going to the authority and stuff like that. So this starts off of course with a money in the bank match where Seth Rollins is the winner of this and he gets help of course from the authority. And after he wins money in the bank, he's pretty much, you know, in his Seth Rollins mindset of I'm going to dominate the world, I'm the best, I'm going to, you know, he wants to pretty much go to Triple H and cash in his contract that same night, but Triple H says no. And so pretty much this whole story, this whole first issue deals with Seth Rollins possibly having regret on joining the authority and him getting you know a little testy with Triple H and, you know, him saying, I want to, you know, can I cash in now? And Triple H is like, not now. Can I cash in now? Not until after WrestleMania, after you beat Randy Orton. And So it's just kind of like you reap what you sow in a sense. And it's a nice kind of lesson that they they put in here. And I'm not going to lie. You can understand, okay, he did turn on the shield. So that's going to cause, you know, at least Dean Ambrose to kind of be pissed at him. Oh, yeah. But Dean Ambrose kind of comes off as a dick in
1: this issue. it's, It's funny. It's funny because... What I loved about the one-shot that they had before this, which told the first part of the story, so if anybody wants to read the first part of that story, go get the uh, WWE Then Now Forever one-shot because that's got the first part of it. But what I love is, it's almost like if you love the promos that they do in oh, the yeah. matches and stuff, it's this is that, but what these comics are doing is it's giving you like ten times more than what you would get there. And it gives you... And now... One thing that I think that we should, because I've read this issue as well, is uh, they're in character, correct? They're in character, yeah. They, like for example,
2: you know, Triple H is real name is Paul, but they call him Hunter in this. So yeah, as you mentioned, this is very much like a backstage promo. Over 20 plus I- it, uh, pages
1: yeah I want people to I want that to be clear to people it's not like you're getting the behind the scenes of oh, no. Seth Rollins's life is really like outside no this is very much in this is an in character story throughout so I want to make sure everybody knows that
2: yeah so I mean again like you know's like Seth Rollins is swimming and then you have Dean Ambrose doing a cannonball on his back and you know it's just uh, you know things where you know with, with Roman reigns is that I will say this I mean I've seen him wrestle I've seen him do promos. He doesn't have the most personality of any WWE superstar, really, no. <laughs> uh, and, and that kind uh, and that kind of very much comes across in this book where he's not really uh, he doesn't really play a wet blanket, but he's just there. I mean, his personality doesn't really pop out at you, so it's like, wow, they really captured the real characteristics of Roman Reigns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I mean, you know, it's just I like the way that that hopeless captures. Uh, they're, everybody, the way they act and stuff like that, because the way that they are in the ring is the way they are you know, behind the scenes and everything else like that, so it, it, it does give you that nice feeling to it, and of course, you know, there's scenes where they're in the WWE offices, and it's just like, there are little glimpses of like, well, maybe this, this is like a behind the scenes thing, but then you realize wait a minute, it's, it'll come out as a promo and it's not a bad thing at all, the art in this, really detailed really, really, you know, for You know, I mean, if you've read Boom's comics, it has that Boom feel to it. The art's really, really done well. The facial features of the expressions are done really, really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say this, though. Roman Reigns, there's a couple of panels where he does look like he has derp face.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, if you've ever caught Roman at a bad moment on Raw, that yeah, that that happens a little bit.
2: And this also makes me feel like like, I'm a guy, who and I, I work out almost every night, but I look at these in the way that these these wrestlers are. And I know they're wrestlers, but I'm just like, Jesus Christ, what am I really doing in the gym? <laughs>
3: like,
2: like <laughs> you know, I, You know, but it's just, no, I mean... The story, I feel, is really good because you're getting that divide between the shield and the authority and kind of you're building up that, that uh, kind of hatred between them, but at the same time, Seth Rollins is not really a likable character in a sense because, you know, he fucks over his faction, but... There is that a final panel where he kind of everything hits him where he's kind of like, well, "What the hell did I do?" You know, and it's kind of one of those things where what he does later on in the book, he kind of goes against the authority, and in a sense, with what Triple H tells him afterwards, he kind of has that like look of regret in his face of like he was looking at something that he has that he's won, and he's like, "Was this all worth it? Like, was like like am I?" in the shit now, you know, yeah, you know what's going yeah. on. It's, that, it's that, that, that unknown thing of like, okay, I've stepped into the woods, I've stepped into this murky waters, what's going to happen next? So I'm going to give this actually, you know, again, as somebody who hasn't watched WWE wrestling in a long time, really, and I'm, I'm not a religious watcher as I was, again, in my high school years, even my early college years. But I'm not going to lie, though. Even though I'm not a fan of the television version, I'm a fan of this comic version. And I'm giving this a poll. I'm giving this a poll. This is a definitely something you had to put in your poll box. It's really, really fun. The art's great. The storytelling's there. And again, some of the fun, great things you feel like in, in wrestling, some of the most iconic things are the promos and the fact that this is written like a promo yeah. – Suits it very well.
1: And I can say that as somebody that has that did watch that whole saga unfold, I did watch the whole Breaking Up of the Shield and how that all went down on on Raw and on the pay-per-views as well. They, they're telling the story exactly how you remember it. If you're a wrestling fan, if you remember all, everything that happened with the Breaking Up of Shield, they're telling that story, but they're giving you more. So if you ever wanted more or wondered what it could have been like, if you'd seen more, these books do that.
2: I'm just gonna say this man, Dean Ambrose, again, he is such a dick, and it's like he's pouring milkshakes on guys' heads, he's cannonballing them in the pool. Like it's 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 he's a
1: dick. Like I well, they think don't you have... call
2: him the lunatic fringe for nothing. That, that is true, and that's gonna do it for what we're reading, but come up next. We're gonna dive into some unfortunate events. Stay tuned. More down and nerdy is come up next. This is comic book editor and co-writer Dara Savage, and you're listening to the Down and
3: Nerdy Podcast.
2: The Baudelaire children's parents were killed in an untimely fire. Netflix saw the children's pain and decided, hey, let's make a eight-part series on Netflix for streaming television. And without further ado, I got to tell you, we are about to dive into our Unfortunate Events full spoiler review. But I must warn you, before we dive into this review of Unfortunate Events, if the hearing of Unfortunate Events somehow depresses you, angers you, or makes you queasy at any moment... I advise you, as do 7 out of 10 nerds who have already previewed this segment, to move forward to our Nerd News segment or interview with David Mizzou's. For those, I promise you will be more joyful and more hopeful than this review. This is our review of Let Me Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events on Netflix. And it is spoiler-filled.
1: I will say this. I don't think that this is the first time that our show would have made someone drowsy or dizzy or something like that, so I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time, but yes, you're right, we were going to talk about some seriously unfortunate events, and you know, Nick, I've seen a lot of people comparing this to the, to, to, uh, comparing this to the movie, and the and of course the books, and everything like that, but I gotta tell you, there was just, just seemed like there was something special about this, didn't there? I had a very Wes
2: Anderson vibe, from the shooting to the music, again going back to the cinematography to the props and just the sets, it had a very Wes Anderson vibe. If you've seen any of his films, you know what I'm talking about. This also was a show where eight episodes was perfect. I yep. felt that you know if a lot of Netflix series get thirteen. This has eight. You know, you figure that's five episodes that they save for next season that they can tell, especially with the way that this ends. Before we talk about how it ends. Of course, I mentioned in the intro how it began and how they go live with Count Olaf and just, they bounce around and everything, you know, everybody, let's put it this way, everybody that the Baudelaire children come into contact with in terms of adults,
1: for the most part, die. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And you, that's not a spoiler either, really. I know that no. Nick said that this is spoiler-filled. The show spoils itself. Yes! Which is co- which is hilarious to me.
2: Yeah, and the if you watch, and this is why it's important, you know, if you know we have fast forwarding features and stuff like that, but you know you, you, you binge watch a show and it has an intro in the beginning. You kind of want to okay, let's fast forward through a little bit, but this one you don't want to because they have Neil Patrick Harris sing the plot of each and every episode pretty much and what's going to happen. And it was it's quite smart and hilarious actually.
3: And
1: not only that, but even in uh, Patrick Warburton's narration of with of, of as Lemony Snicket. He also spoils things, he, it, like uh, when they were talking about Uncle Monty. And then it's like, Uncle Monty would not perish here, but he will. Yeah. <laughs> it's like,
3: what? <laughs> it's,
1: it's that the that the
2: characters in this show have such a straightforwardness to them that it comes off as, like, very blunt and sometimes goofy. For example, Mr. Poe played by K. Todd Freeman, when he's like, it's a wonderful day. Your parents died in an unfortunate fire. Right, like, exactly. It's like, savage, man. Like, no chill. Like, these these characters have no chill when it comes to stuff like that. But, in a sense, it, it brings out that kind of, like, satire kind of laughter in a dark, depressing time, you know. And it's it's really something where, talking about Mr. Poe, as the season goes along, it, it, and it's kind of a detriment to the show, but it's it's... I understand what they're doing with the characters. By episode six, seven, you're kind of like, okay, these characters are getting annoying
1: as fuck in terms oh of their my stupidity. God, did didn't I tell you? Because I was a little bit ahead of you when we were watching this. And you you texted me that exact same thing that you said about about Mr. Poe having no chill. And I was like, I want to punch Mr. Poe in the face. Yeah. And, and you kind of gave me, I'll paraphrasing, oh, he's such a lovable character. And I'm like, Wait. Oh, he's a fucking <laughs> moron. It's like, you take the dumbest person you know, multiply it by 10, and you'll get Mr. Poe. And I, again, you're right. I know exactly why they're doing it this way, but it's like, how can anybody be that stupid
2: <laughs> right but not just that but just like you know as kind of all, all these disguises and 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 you know his his acting troop is you know putting on the same disguises as well and stuff like that it's kind of like how can you not see like how can you not see but again it kind of ties into a nice little not really a boy who cries wolf scenario, but kind of like, oh, they're kids. We're not
1: going to believe them. Actually, just that's kids. exactly what it is. In a way, they did kind of bring in the boy who cries wolf type of scenario. I think that that's part of it. But the problem is, is that once you find out it's the wolf the first time, shouldn't you give the kids a little bit of the benefit of the doubt?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, speaking of the kids, you know, Melina Weissman who plays Violet, and you know, Louis Hines plays Klaus Baudelaire, and. Presley Smith, who's the baby Sonny Bowl there, I think that they all really melded well together. I think that they came off really believable as brother and sisters. I think that, you know, really, I'm not going to lie, Violet was one of the most intriguing characters I've seen on television really in a while because, you know, just, you know, when it's one of those things where it's like, you know how people make that joke of when you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special when Linus says, lights, please, you know, shit's about to go down. Yeah. When Violet ties her hair up, you know shit's about to go down.
1: Yeah, and I got to say, man, Melina Weissman, I got to give a big tip of the cap to her because she did, not that the other kids didn't, and I agree that everybody did very well and there was such a really good chemistry there, but there was just something about her. I mean, when she had her spotlight moments, she just commanded the screen and made you pay attention. And she just did such a good job. And her delivery... Just the delivery alone of her character and the way that it was so deliberate, the way she delivered her lines and the way that she portrayed Violet Baudelaire, I just think there was something special about it.
2: Yeah, and of course what I liked about the way that they scripted this whole first season of the show is that each k- kid, especially between her and Klaus, have this moment of acceptance of like, well... Our lives are kind of shit. We have to accept it for what they are. You know, for example, when they're in the the lumber mill and Klaus is like, we got to go. And she's like, well, we can't really go. You know, we must stay. And it's kind of like she's like, well, shit, I fucked up. We should have left. I should have believed you because he becomes hypnotized and stuff like that. They each have their own little senses and and timings of self-doubt, which I liked.
1: And I like that they waited to give you that point of conflict until right towards the end of the show. Because it made it matter more for me. You know, it seemed like, you know, okay, we're together, we're together, we're together, we're together. And then all of a sudden, when things look almost their darkest, there's this point of conflict. And it surrounds around whether or not their parents were responsible for that huge fire. And then you're right, Violet does have that sense of regret. But it makes you care about it more because they built it up so well until almost the end... To bring that out. So I thought that that was a really good decision on their part.
2: And by building it up, is well, this was something that the show does really well because in the first episode Patrick Warburton's Let Me Snicket tells you that this is going to be a show, a story that does not have a happy ending whatsoever. But what they do v- very smart is they inject kind of like what Danny Boyle did in 127 Hours. They inject certain scenarios, certain beats or plot points that make you think oh maybe let me doesn't know his own story maybe this might have a happy yeah, ending yeah and then the rug gets pulled from under you something happens and you're like well damn we're back to square one and i just gotta say this man too is that what they do with father and mother in this i think it was smart as hell I oh, think it was that, so smart talking about what i just
1: said with the whole maybe this is gonna have a happy ending after all nope <laughs> not at all yeah, do you want to talk about having the rug pulled out from under? We had the rug pulled out yeah. from under us with that scenario. I think that they made that because they made you feel so much like, okay, your parents are alive and they are going to meet up with them and what they did with the door as yeah. well. And you're and then you go, well, shit, <laughs> <You know? laughs> especially if you haven't read the books. And by the way, for anybody that doesn't know, these eight episodes cover the first four books in yeah. the series. Yeah. A, I mean, each each book got two episodes, and you're thinking, well, that can't be enough. It really was,
2: wasn't it? It was, and, and part of me felt like, again, going back to the whole eight-episode setup, where I'm like, if they went 13, I felt that would been too much. I felt that where they ended it, because again, this is based on, on a book series, so it's kind of like, well, how long can Netflix really stretch it out, and will this get to a point to where they have to pull a Game of Thrones and be like, well, we have yeah. to go off the books and do our own thing, and could that pr- cause some problems? So really, it's as you know, as producers and showrunners go, it has to be that line of like, well, where do we cut this off, and how do we do it? I think two episodes on each book felt really, 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 really good job.
1: Absolutely, and I mean, what I loved was the way that they handled each book, you know, and and anybody that has you don't have to read the books by the way to enjoy the show, not at all. So don't don't think that going in. What I want to say is that. It's the way that you had to interpret it that I think was difficult. And, and uh, Lemony Snicket, of course, which is the pen name for David Handler, who's the author of these series, uh, he was telling Entertainment Weekly, he said one of the things that was difficult in adapting this to the TV is is that when you're reading the books, you can say something like, and I'm paraphrasing here of the interview that Entertainment Weekly did, where if you're reading a book, you, you say to yourself as a reader, oh, I hope they look under the table. But yeah. in the show, you literally have to pan the camera under the table so you know what's going on so he said if anything that was the biggest challenge in adapting this but i think they did that so well because it 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 was deliberate when it needed to be deliberate it was it was not when it didn't need to be and it gave you that sense of mystery as well so i think just just the way they put this together and i don't really want to compare it to the movie but the way that they put this together i think they did a fantastic job
2: i haven't seen the movie nor have i read the books so i really went into this thing blind and I will say this, Neil Patrick Harris's version of Count Olaf was stupendous. Like, he was fantastic the way that he acted and everything else like that. And he had this sort of goofiness, but also sort of charm. You even though, know even though he is an evil fucking man, Count Olaf is. Oh, totally. He has a certain sense of charm to him in this show that Neil Patrick Harris brought. And again, I can't compare this to Jim Carrey's version because I haven't seen the movie. Nor would I if I had seen the movie. But I think that for what the angle they were going with this, and I think that you know, you look back at when we reviewed Emerald City last week. What's one thing I said about Emerald City that I didn't like about it was it tried to be too serious. It tried to be too thought out in its realism. This show knows what it is. It knows it's based off of these goofy books with these goofy characters, and it said, you know what? we're going to go with this and we're going to run with this. We're not going to try to reel it in too far into ser- being serious, but we n- know in certain parts we have to reel this in to make it sort of believable in a sense and not go off the rails slapstick goofy. And that's what I liked about this is that mm-hmm. they, they found that happy medium between being – you know, extreme on one angle and reeling it in when I needed to, to make it grounded again. And that's what I liked about it. That's what made it memorable. That's what made some of the lines this memorable. Like the whole, you know, when, when the justice is knocking on his door and, and he's like, you know, I told I he's like, I'm sorry about the noise. I told the children that should, they should cry using their inside voices. Like yeah, that was a good, that was a really good line. <laughs> like, like just some of the lines there. And just the whole, like when he's running through the whole idea of, you know, where they're staying, just a house and the bathroom. He's like, the, the shampoo, I must warn you, the, sh- the shampoo is not tearless. It actually induces tears. <laughs> I've provided this pile of rocks for your convenience. <laughs> right. And part of me was like, how much of this was, you know, ad lib by Neil Patrick Harris? And a friend of mine actually, she uh, messaged me and she said, actually, this is, a lot of his dialogue is based on what's in the books. And so I'm like, Wow, to give the books a kind of fresh take through yeah. this character is really, really well done.
1: Yeah, and I want to correct myself. It's Daniel Handler, not David. I think I said David. So it's Daniel Handler that is the author of Let Me to Snicket. It, Snick it. So I will correct myself on that. But I totally agree. I mean, if you're going to do an adaptation, we always say, okay, don't do a shot for shot. But... But when it comes to dialogue, and it comes to getting a character like Count Olaf exactly right, it doesn't matter how you adapt it. You have to keep certain things and aspects about that character. And when a book is written so well, and really brings out that character. And if you're Neil Patrick Harris who I'm sure ad-libbed some stuff, but if you're Neil Patrick Harris and you read this and you go, damn, that's a good line. I could, I, I see bet it. I could really nail that line. And I'm sure that he he did this. Like, why would I change this? I could see him getting an
2: Emmy for this, or at least a nomination for this, or, or a Golden Globe or something, because he his portrayal was was fantastic. And, you know, somebody who's not credited in this, but when you hear the Goo-Goos and the guy guys, I immediately think of Tara Strong. I'm like, that sounds like Tara Strong, and yeah. oh my god, it's Tara Strong voices Sonny Baudelaire, so I mean, big shout out to her, because it's just, it, it's amazing, and again, going to Count Olaf's troop, and just who they cast for that, I mean, I will say this, if I need to look at my future, if i ever lost, lose my
1: left arm, the hook-handed man
2: is my <laughs> fucking future.
1: Yeah, pretty much, Usman Ali had a, just did so well, and I'll be honest, I didn't know he was the foreman right away
0: yeah i I found out i
1: I was like i'll be damned i thought it was off and i'm not gonna lie
2: because you know we have technology if you've seen social network when they deal with the the twins there the white-faced women in this they're actually real sisters or jacqueline robbins and joyce robbins and i'm like is that just one of them because you know they just said okay we're gonna have we're gonna shoot simultaneously in a sense or or how they gonna do this but no it's it's, it's sisters and they were, It was. It was great. It was really, really great. And it's just. Uh, it, 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 it's really, really fun. I like how Maddie Cartpole is, is la- listed on IMDb. His character is hench person of intermi- intermittent gender and <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I love that. And then, I mean, what about name dropping? The show actually does. I mean, you've got Don Johnson is in there. He goes, yeah. sir. And then Offrey Woodard, of course, is Aunt Josephine. Joan Cusack, who you mentioned. Catherine O'Hara right there at the end of those last two episodes as is, is Dr. Orwell. There's a lot of, I, I guess you could say, the, that person, actors and actresses in the show that
2: I just love. And you can't forget, of course, one of my favorite guys. He's, my one of my favorite comedians, actually, too, is uh, Reese Darby, who plays Charles in this. He's also He also voices... Uh, the mustache, I can't think of his name, but he's the mustache guy on Voltron, Legendary Defender as well.
1: Yes, yes. So I mean, there's, there's there's, just so many, there's so many people that are playing key roles in this in such sh- short stretches that I think that's what also made this brilliant. It's like every two episodes, you had a reset. And you could do that because you were ending a book every two episodes. Right. So it allowed them to reset and tell... The same story, but different stories at the same time, which I thought was really just brilliant the way they executed it.
2: So without further ado, man, I think we've talked about the show enough to the point where people can get a gist of what we think about it. But let's give our ratings. I'll have you go first.
1: And, you know, as somebody who did enjoy the movie with Jim Carrey uh, and and has has enjoyed at least a few of the books anyway, I can't say that I've read all of them. But I, I've definitely enjoyed it. And there's just something about this. And I've always said, somebody asked me, like, why do you like this so much? I said, because when you do dark comedy and you break the fourth well like this show does and you don't take yourself seriously and you tell a unique story and everyone involved in the story executes it so well, I just love, there's something I just love so much about that. And when it's done right, it's, you can just really knock it out of the park because there's been so much and I would consider this a dark comedy as well as like a like a fantasy adventure type thing but there are so many times where dark comedy is done just to be done and it's boring and it doesn't work and you're left you and by the end you're going why did i just sit through that with this my feelings is exactly the opposite i want more like right now and apparently they're shooting this as quickly as possible because they'd like to get it all done. I think they've already started to at least start thinking about season two, if not already started working on season two because the kids, of course, are going to age out of these roles here pretty soon. But I I just felt like I needed more right away. And I don't always feel like that. I think the last time I felt that way was ironically enough was with Stranger Things. Like I need this in my life now. So, I mean, given that, I got to say that even though I was annoyed a couple of times with some of the characters, I know that that was completely on purpose, but I think that this is almost as close to a flawless execution as you can get. So I'm going to give this 10 gnawing babies out of 10.
2: I'll say this. Oh, I liked about this show in terms of the writing. I liked again, as I mentioned earlier, that it found the happy medium of it knew what it was and accepted it for what it was and it decided, you know, at certain points let's reel it back a little bit and let's kind of reground this a little bit, not fully, but a little bit to the point where it doesn't become too ostentatious in terms of just the 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 thing, the craziness that's going on. I love, I'm, I'm a big fan of cinematography and when I studied in college, it was just one of my favorite things to study. And just the way they use the cinematography and they shoot it like a Wes Anderson thing to where I'm kind of like, wait a minute, are these like model sets that they're using, like little miniature model sets they're using, for like when you see a car driving or whatever, and, or the actual real-life cars and people in them and stuff like that. And it kind of, it, it really emphasized the creativity aspect in this. So, I mean, so everybody who created the sets and everything else, wonderful job by everybody. The only detriment I have in this, however, is, of course, I understand that the the trope the, the troop and just some of the characters in this are supposed to be annoying and get, and grow more annoying as the season concludes and moves forward. But there was a point where I got to like episode seven, episode eight, where I'm kind of like, Oh Jesus Christ. You know, you become really super annoyed, but just how, for lack of a better term, dumb these characters can kind of be and just how foolish they can be. Because it's kind of like, you know, every time when, for example, Mr. Poe finds out that it's Count Olaf, It's not, you know, the sailor or whomever. And, It's like, okay, he's figured it out. But then it's kind of like, wait a minute. Count Olaf's dressing as another character. Mr. Poe's not going to fall for this, is he? He's not going to fall for it again, is he? Okay, he did. And it's just like, at some point, it's kind of like, oh, God, you have to, like, be smarter, at least have some sort of smarts in this. But it was a great show. The acting, I thought, was, was stupendous. I laughed numerous times. I will say this, as you said, with Stranger Things... This did give me that kind of like I need it now Netflix moment. You know, outside the Marvel shows, this gave me that, that Stranger Things vibe of I need season two now. Outside of that one detriment of the characters, I will give this nine out of ten theater troops.
1: I think that's fair. I think that's pretty fair.
2: And that's going to do it for our spoiler-filled review of Lemmy Snickets, a series of unfortunate events, which you can catch, of course, season one on Netflix right now, all the episodes. Are streaming. But that's gonna do it for gatetainment. Become next, it's nerd news. We have a bunch of it, including the Nintendo Switch's price and some things that we might not have liked about a couple other stories that happened during the week. This is Cartoonist, Scotty Young, and
1: you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, James, time we grab our joysticks and talk about what's trending around the internet because it's time for nerd. nerd! And I know this might be a little bit of late news, but you know what? It's big, so we have to cover it. Nintendo had, of course, recently their Nintendo Switch event where they showcased, hey, here's the release date, which is going to be March 3rd. Here's the price, which is going to be $2.99. And they also released their plethora of games. However, there are some problems with the Switch. Uh, the battery life, they said it can last anywhere from about two, two and a half to six hours, but that depends on the game you play. For example, if you're playing Zelda, you're going to get three and a half hours of battery life, which really isn't a lot when you think about it uh, for a handheld. And I'm looking at the exclusives, man, and I'm not going to lie. You have 1-2 Switch, which is pretty much Wiimo, Wii Sports-esque kind of a th- party game that Nintendo pumps out. Then you have, of course, this boxing game called Arms, which I am deeply offended by as (laughs) a warrant, man. I am am deeply offended by that.
1: (laughs) You're just trying to get a free Switch.
2: I really am. (laughs) But, uh,
1: no, I'm just looking at the the exclusives,
2: and you have Fire Emblem, okay, Fast RMX, which is another racing game. No F-Zero, really. Like, we can't get an F-Zero game. You have another Mario Kart game. You have a Pioneer game. And then you have, of course, Zelda, which is going to, I believe, be a launch title as well with the Switch, which is great. Um, but then you have Super Mario Odyssey and Super Bomberman R, and it's just, it's just, and Xenoblade Chronicles too. So it's like, and of course Splatoon two. So when it's like, when you look at these launch titles and just some of these titles in general, it doesn't really sound and look sexy to me.
1: No, and we know that there's going to be other titles that are going to be available for this that may not have been available on the Wii, but that's not really saying much, if you ask me. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't available on the Wii, so I'm not even sure that you can count that. But, I mean, yeah, you look at those titles and, I mean, I guess to play devil's advocate just a little bit... I guess Nintendo has to be different because otherwise you're the, you're already coming in as the third console of the bunch. So if you come in with a lot of the same stuff, what difference does it make? And, and one more devil's advocate uh, advocate thing. I mean, I guess having the ability to take a game that you are playing on your console with you, which isn't always an option. I mean, I know the PlayStation tried it with the, with the, with the Vita and kind of failed miserably there. And for good reasons, I think the ability to do that is cool, but you're right. I mean, if you're not getting at least a somewhat significant amount of battery life, I'm not sure what the point is. I guess what they're thinking is most people are going to be doing this in a short span anyway, so why give them six hours of battery of portability if you're just going to be doing this for a short amount of time? I guess they're not thinking somebody's going to be gaming for that long, but in your spot that you had to release the Switch... Remember they had these this group of people that you know had all their Switches and they were gaming together and stuff like that? Well, if you're in a group gaming environment like that, you're probably going to be playing more than three hours. Or if it's a party-type atmosphere, obviously, you're thinking you're probably going to be playing that much longer, so... I don't know, man. I, I see the good and the bad, and I'm not really sure which way to go on this anymore.
2: I want to I build on what you just said about the whole, you know, we see people, you know, professional gamers and stuff like that. You know, there are sessions where you're training, where you're, you know, creating strategy. If you're only going to get, like, three hours out of a pad, that's not good, especially because we haven't really seen – a really a way that you can charge the pad outside of the putting it in the switch holder because it's like in that dock so it's like if i'm on a plane if i'm flying from virginia to los angeles or vice versa or to los angeles to new york or whatever or, and, and i get my flight's gonna be over three hours long i, I can't you're telling me i gotta pull out my, my I had to bring my dock with me to pull it out and put the switch in there plug the dock in while I wait for my flight. And if I have a layover, that's, that's, that's well, a
1: hassle. There's your point, too. Let's say you take it with you on a plane. Once your battery dies, that's it. Oh, you're fucked. It doesn't matter where you are. I mean, once you get to your hotel, if your battery's dead, you're dead because you don't have your base with you. You can't charge it, in theory. We don't know that once they release it, there will be some sort of on-the-go charger. Maybe there will be, so, you know, I guess jury's still out on that. But, yeah, if that's the case, that would be a big deal.
2: Another problem I have, too, is just Nintendo is really pricing themselves out in terms of, of how much their their controllers, something like that, cost. Like, a controller, like a Joy-Con controller, something like that, outside of the Switch, when you buy it, it's like 70, 80 bucks.
1: That's a lot for a fucking controller. And it's a behemoth. Yeah. You know, and that's part of the problem. I mean, that's one of the things I didn't like about the Nintendo 64 when they made that switch to the Nintendo 64 was the controller was a beast. You know, going from what you had to the SNES to Nintendo 64. That was a pretty big change. Not so much now, but but back then that was a huge change. And now you look at the controllers comparatively, I guess you could kind of compare it to the to the xbox one as far as controller size is concerned and amount of buttons and stuff like that but yeah that's why you got to put it at 70 80 dollars because it's a behemoth and maybe you wouldn't have had to if it was a little smaller
2: but again i I look at it like you know controllers i don't think should cost more than like 30 40 bucks no they shouldn't you know, and I mean, you know, going back to the N64, I didn't mind the controller for the N64 because this I know they had, like, the four C buttons. But really, if you think about it, like, all the games that use the C buttons are more for camera control. Like, if you want to turn the camera or pan it up or down, like, that's hot what they were for. So I didn't really have a, a problem with it. But I'm just looking at what Nintendo's doing. Like, Nintendo, do we really need – I shit you not this is a real thing. Do we really need a cow milking simulator? Like, do we really need that?
1: Well, I mean, people playing Farmville forever, maybe they want the hands-on experience.
2: But if you're a guy, you can just jerk off, and that's all you need.
1: Well, I mean, it's a kind of a different experience. <laughs> well, you're milking something, either way. <laughs> I don't think you'll be putting that in your cereal, though. <laughs> or at least, God, I hope not.
2: uh But, I mean, another thing that really grinds my gears about this whole Switch thing is because Nintendo is like, okay, we're going to make the jump to, you know, have a paid online system, a paid online format, you know, like Xbox Live. Oh, yeah,
1: here we go.
2: And PlayStation Network. So, you know, PlayStation Network, you pay a subscription fee, but you know what you get? You get the chance to, hey, here's a code for, you know, a sale in the PlayStation Network store for half-off digital downloads or... You know the network itself just say you know there was a time in when we reviewed you know uh, infamous second son and dishonor to be we get we did that because they were half off they're like seven bucks a piece in the PlayStation store, but Nintendo's like you know what we're gonna do once a month we will let you rent not buy this is for five dollars you're paying for this, this this fee for online stuff for five bucks a month we will allow you to rent for one month. In NES or SNES game, not one you can choose, but we will just randomly release one, and that's what you'll get once a month. That's bullshit.
1: Not only that, you, you, what, you, what you want to do with the Switch is you want to keep get people to stop buying the Retron consoles that you can buy at old school video game stores and get the old and just get the old school cartridge games. What you're trying to do if you're Nintendo is to get people to stop doing that. And now for the what third time? They've, they're not doing it right. Like, even with the Wii, when they had their Nintendo vault, sure, you could buy a game and save it, but guess what? Once your Wii dies, that's it. Yeah. You've got to rebuy the game over and over and over and over again. Guess what, Nintendo? I've got a little bit of knowledge to drop on you. You're not Disney, okay? No. Disney has found an uncanny way to sucker us all, into rebuying their movies over and over and over again every time there's a format change and we always say we're not going to do it but then, damn it, yes you are you're going to do it anyway And but at least Disney has given you the digital copy option whereas Nintendo, you've got to have some sort of a cloud man, you've got to build up some sort of credibility to where if people are buying these games or like you said, renting them which is the biggest bullshit part of it of the whole thing give people the opportunity to be able to take these games and put them somewhere and know, okay, I have this, quote-unquote, in theory, in the digital world forever. And once yeah. I buy Super Mario, the original Super Mario, I now have it forever on on any digital platform that Nintendo provides. If
2: Nintendo came out and said, you know what, you pay for this online thing, you get uh, at, least, at least every month you get a library of, you know, five different... Nintendo sixty four games. you know, kinda of, if you want to do it more like a loot crate thing, where you're like, this month's, you know, games are based on Mario. So if you have the $5 subscription, you can get Super Mario 64, Super Mario All-Stars from the NES, the classic Mario Duck Hunt, you know, stuff like that if you wanted it. So it's just like those there's some better ideas. I mean, ha- really for what you think about it, you're spending money to buy an emulator. Not really buy an emulator, you're renting one. You're so you're pretty much getting you're paying for stuff you can get for free basically
1: yeah and and it's this is a formerly illegal piece of technology right that you're having to rent think about that for a second and and not only that now i will say this if they decided to do the rental thing like you said for five bucks if for five dollars for one month i could rent the entire mario catalog that's different I might be okay with that. I still wouldn't be totally thrilled with it, but at least I can justify it saying, okay, I'm going to get Mario 1, 2, 3, I'm going to get Super Mario World, and the All-Stars and all that stuff, the not-released levels of whatever of Mario, you know what I'm talking about. If you could get every Mario in the catalog for five bucks for one month, and then, then next month will be Zelda, and the month after that will be Metroid and stuff like that. By the way, where the hell is Metroid? Right, where's Switch.
2: where's Metroid? Everybody's like, "Oh, Skyrim's coming." Like, Skyrim's a, like a 5-year-old game. Like, why like, like I, it's a great game, but don't be like it's a brand new Skyrim. Yeah, the fact
1: that you can now play it on Nintendo just means that Nintendo's finally decided to sack up and get to get with the program. That doesn't right. mean that it's a great thing. It's, "Oh yeah, if you want to buy the Switch, you can also get Skyrim." I mean, I guess that's a good thing for some people, but you, you're right. Don't act like it's a new game. But my, my my final
2: gripe with this thing is just again you have this five dollars subscription service. and You mentioned the whole rent thing. I'm like just buy, it. just give me an option to buy it. Like if I can have, you know, a digital copy of like Super Mario All Stars, Super Mario World, or Metroid, or whatever. Like that's fine. If I if my Switch dies and I lose that, that's fine. You know what I'm saying? Like or maybe you'll be to a point where you know what if you have to create a profile, which I would think you would. You save it within your profile. That's what like, I'm
1: trying to say. Yeah.
2: Or, or you save it to your cloud. Like it's it's one of those thi- you know like it's one of those things that stays with it. Like it stays with your your profile or in the cloud or whatever. So you never lose it. If in case your switch dies or something happens to it or it gets damaged, so you can, don't have to lose you know the games you've purchased or that library you had. And it's just it's just sucks because we were, I remember we were when this first announcement came, we were so happy. Like oh, you can do this, this, and this. And now when the details come out, you're like, oh, God. And, again, the problem you say about going back to the NES consoles and the old school consoles, Nintendo has a very terrible business practice where what they will do is they will literally – I've had friends that have called. My sister got my brother-in-law a Nintendo NES classic for Christmas. And it's, Nintendo, what they will do is they'll say, we sold out of things everywhere. But what they'll do is they'll limit – how much of a certain console they'll give to retailers. Like, even Walmart, like, Walmart here, I called, they're like, I'm like, how many NES clacks do you have? We have three. 300? No, just three. Yep. Nintendo just gave us three. Like, are you shitting me, Nintendo? Like, they they restrict how much they give, and they say, oh, we sold out, and they create demands. Like, Nintendo, demand was already there! You don't need to restrict how many... Things you give them, you know. exactly.
1: I mean, you've wanted to do a hundred, fine. I mean, that would still be kind of a dick move, but if you want to do a hundred, fine, and create buzz. But three? Come on, man. Yeah. I mean, geez.
2: I mean, there are places, man. Like especially in smaller cities, I know people live in some places like like big retailers like GameStop or Walmart, they only get one,
1: one. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a place where, where you've where you got to hitch up the mule and go down to the lo- local general store, I can imagine you've probably only got one or two. That? But you're what talking is... about GameStop in a, in a city that's in a top 50 market? To, sorry to pull back the curtain there. But uh, television market, come on. You've got to have more than three at your Walmart.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. But, you know, speaking of games, James, hey, that rhymes, awesome. But, um... <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... We had a trailer release this week, and, you know, of course, Injustice 2, we're so looking forward to that. I know I actually have a PlayStation 4. I can actually play it. Unlike you, we still have a PlayStation 3. One day you'll get there, sir. One day you will reach the balance. I will
1: get there. I will get there. It'll be like,
2: watch, the PlayStation 5 will come out. You'll text me like, I got a PlayStation 4. Dude, the PlayStation 5 was just announced at E3. <laughs>
1: That's what I did last time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I waited so long to get my PS3, and now the tradition is coming to pass once again.
2: Well, again, hey, your son's getting older, so you can just say you can buy a PS4 and just say, "Hey, it's for Jameson." But, but he really,
1: needs this. It's for the family.
2: <laughs> 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 but I mean, like the, the trailer for Injustice Two was that was released, and it's a glorious trailer. We'll get to the villains in a second, but you know, it's a story trailer. So pretty much, what it sets off is carries off from Justice One. The Injustice version of Superman is looks to be in prison and. Pretty much it looks like, who knows, we see Supergirl attacking Wonder Woman, so could it mean that she thinks that, you know, or she's the Injustice's world version of Supergirl, so she's going to protect her cousin? And it's just one of these things where they say the lines are drawn. We see Robin, you know, Damien actually adds Robin in this, uh, taking on his father Batman. We see uh, Poison Ivy, we see Bane. I'm not going to lie though; I saw Poison Ivy just because of the way the shadow looked. I thought that was Killer Frost for a second. <laughs>
1: Well, and we know that Killer Frost has already been part of it. But yeah, when I saw Ivy, I was like, ooh. And they're going off, the, and they're not going th- by the comics either. You know, you had Injustice, you one, you two, you three, and so on in the comics. They're going off of that, which I'm totally fine with, by the way. I like that the fact that the comics are going to stand on their own. But there is precedent with Damien going against his father in the comics. But Supergirl's the wild card here. Yeah, I don't know where her head's at. Even from this trailer, I'm not even really sure where her head is at right now. So that to me is a very intriguing part of this.
2: Well, because again, we don't know who. You know, they talk about the trailer; the lines have been drawn. So it's like we still know who's on whose side. Who you know, she could be on. Who knows? Maybe that's the Wonder Woman that you know, Superman was with in the Injustice Universe. You know, she's fighting her. We don't know, but you know, we fast forward to the end. And who is narrated by, and it's Brainiac. And I'm not surprised that Brainiac is being brought into the no. realm of injustice. I mean, if you th- see everything that he did with Convergence, we had different types of Brainiac, maybe they can build off of that or take some parts of that and bring it into the game. Who knows? But at the end of the trailer in general, we get, and this is not a surprise at all either. The fact that Darkseid, he's gonna be in the game, he's gonna be a, a more of a uh pre-order if you want to buy dark side which i think i hate that i like they,
1: they did that was odd too you know? i know
2: but my thing and but that kind of part makes me feel like i just want to wait until the like deluxe or these whatever edition comes out that has all the dlc with it and everything
1: yep the greatest hits version yep that's probably what i would do
2: yeah because i mean well this is because if you look at this roster it's huge so yeah
1: I mean, it's just one of those things
2: where I might just wait wait a year. And I say that, but I know I'm probably going to be the first one in line at midnight to buy the damn thing.
3: Well, and you know the
1: skins, too. We're going to have skins. You know there's probably going to be a Melissa Benoist... Right for Supergirl and stuff like that, like they did with with Green um, Arrow Maryland. and the first Injustice game with a Mel, and you know maybe there's going to be a a uh, Flash version yeah. with Grant Gustin. So or, you know I'm a well, sucker for that kind of stuff. Or
2: maybe there'll be a a Earth three Flash with John Wesley's Ship.
1: Yeah, that would be really cool. So I mean, you just don't know oh, what you could. Can you get. imagine if they had like the
2: '80s Flash costume, like the '90s Flash costume? Ship that, that would be pretty
1: cool. That How would cool would that cool. be if they had like
2: these old or if they had like the. Uh, the Linda Carter Wonder Woman costume.
1: That would be neat. And, and this is a, we're all about nostalgia right now. So yeah. you never know. That might be a good expansion pack.
2: Yeah, pretty much. But I mean, what do you think, what are your thoughts before we move on to our third and final story? What are your thoughts about the story? Like what do you think you can piece together happens pretty much in this?
1: I think that what we're seeing and part of the thing that surprised me in the trailers, it looks like Batman's ignoring crime in Gotham. I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but you see him turning off the TV when Harley's kicking someone's ass. So I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but you know, maybe this is the breaking of the bat and not so much about Superman. Maybe it's Batman now in this that's changing and that's what causes the rift between him and Damien. And I almost think that we're going to see Damien with Superman and Supergirl with Batman. I think you're going to get that change, and I think it's going to be a family divided uh, type of storyline that they're going to go with. And then it's just just like the first Injustice, where now you've got to choose sides, and which side is everybody going to be on based on all of these things. But I think that where Batman's head is at is going to go a long way to finding out where this game is going to go story wise.
2: I know the story is going to be probably more of just like as it was the first Justice game, where you play as everybody, you go through everything certain chapters and stuff but what I would like to see too is maybe you know I would like to see maybe the story divided up into two things kind of like going back to Sonic Adventure 2 when you had a light side and a dark side if you can say you choose the side of Superman you get the whole Superman story If you choose the side of Batman you get the whole Batman story you know so maybe if they had something like that but I know it's going to be more of just like probably bounce like, like the same thing in Injustice 1 which I'm perfectly fine with but It'd be cool, like we had like a dark side story or like a, a brainiac story. We could just be the, the puppet master and see how everything works. You know, I mean, that'd be pretty cool. If you could cool. do that
1: in a challenge mode, maybe. Yeah. Like they kind they kind of did with Injustice One, where if you beat the the challenge mode with a certain character, it'd give you that character story. If we could get that, but maybe I know what you're saying. I think it's, good, it's a good idea actually. But give us a little bit more than we got in the first game, which I guess you can do now because PS4 is that much more ramped up. Do that. I think that would actually be really neat.
2: And our final story, James, deals with Star Trek Discovery, of course, the show on CBS All Access. And while they have casted the father of Spock, there are some bad news surrounding the show.
1: Yep. So Theo Gallivan himself, James Frain, is going to be playing uh, Sarek, who, of course, is Spock's father for anybody that's not a Trekkie. Um, and that is the good news because I do love him. I think he does a lot of good work. We've talked about him on the show before, so we won't go into it too deeply. But remember that May release date? That's not happening now. As a matter of fact, it's delayed indefinitely. Now, I know that there was a story in Entertainment Weekly saying that they might start shooting in Toronto this week, or maybe the shooting will be starting soon. And I'm thinking, if you were going to launch in May, why the hell... Weren't you already shooting anyway? You, you So you knew before you even did this that you weren't going to make May, and now you've just kind of decided to bring it up.
2: A part of me, I mentioned this to you off air last night, a part of me thinks that because this is on a streaming service that's pretty new, CBS All Access, that the budget for our Star Trek show, I know we saw the promo trailer which had the ship fly off and everything else, but... It's gonna be a pretty expensive show for an, a a streaming network. I know it's CBS, but it could, but it's a, it's an off branch thing. You know, the budget at CW isn't the same as CBS. Just put it that way. They're different budgets, stuff like that. This could be a thing where they, they that CBS all, you know came to them and said, "Yeah, your budget, you have to work with this." They probably did like they could have done a been ready to shoot this week or whatever this month. But then CBS did what Fox did with Deadpool, which was
1: like, yeah, you got to cut like $40 million from this budget here. Here's the deal. This is a scare grab for them. They felt like they needed a name. They went out and got one. So to, to me, I want to say to CBS, stop it. Stop trying to adapt these properties. I mean, you had your chance with Supergirl. You thought the budget was too big and, and you kind of blew it. And Luckily, somebody saved the show. You... You don't so to me, it's like the either you either don't know what you're doing with these properties or you don't have the money, like you said, to do what you're doing. And either way, the only person that ends up getting screwed in this deal is us, the fans. So I just kind of want CBS to stop trying. If you want to spend all your money on slow motion close ups on CSI, that's your business. If that's what you want to do, if that's what you think has the cool factor, then fine. You want to try and go younger? You're failing miserably, because every time you do, you screw it up. Or you not- try and adapt the wrong thing. It's, it's sad to me that they can do a better adaptation of Hawaii 5 than they can for Star Trek. And I know the budget thing is totally different. I'm not discounting that at all. But you seem to be more focused on being able to get MacGyver right than getting Star Trek right.
2: Not only that, but remember, they had to replace their showrunner, too.
1: Yes! He and this was supposed to be the be-all, end-all from the Roddenberry Universe showrunner, and then, no, but he'll be staying on to do yada, yada, yada. Okay, that doesn't make me feel good at all. No, not at all. Whenever whenever you see
2: this person has is no longer a showrunner, but they're going to stay on as, like, a smaller role or whatever, pretty much what you're saying is, they're gonna. They might be around, but they might not. But their fingerprints really aren't going to be on this as much. Yeah, as they
1: and they is. were parading him around like the Queen of England every time they did something, talking about this show, saying, "Well, remember, look who we've got, so you don't need to be nervous." And then everything they've announced since then is making me nervous.
2: Yeah, well, something that's not making me nervous, of course, is who we have coming up next on the Donneray Podcast: Davin Mazouz, who, of course, plays Bruce Wayne. He's going to be joining us to talk about Season 3 of Gotham, The Court of Owls, and more. That's coming up next.
0: Hey, this is Drew Powell from Gotham on Fox. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Well, the Mad City, not really more mad than it is right now for these January episodes on Gotham on Fox every Monday night at 8 p.m. And how about this? We have got Bruce Wayne himself this week. It's David Mazouz. David, how you doing? I'm great. How you doing? We're doing excellent. As a matter of fact, before we get talking about uh, this season on Fox, which has been insane, let's talk about the fact that you've been playing a young Bruce Wayne for more than anyone else has in the past. So, do you feel like that kind of gives you a unique perspective on who Bruce Wayne is as a character? You know, I never thought
0: about that, but that that's an excellent point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just playing Bruce Wayne in general, even if it was for two seconds, is such a, a blessing. It, I, I I can't I can't even put it into words because um, every time I think about it I just I I don't, I don't even know what I feel I'm, I'm I feel shocked I feel blessed but like you said I mean yes yeah, it was almost three years now it's kind of it's kind of insane that this is um that this is still going and I'm i playing I'm playing Batman as a kid I mean it's it's it's, it's wonderful I, I I don't even know how to how to put it into words and I mean, like you said, yeah, it does give me a unique perspective on who the character is. And I think it gives me a unique perspective on on who who his past self is, how he got there. I think one of the things that I find really, really cool is when I open the script and I see some sort of drag or hint or foreshadowing to who he's going to become. There's a huge one coming up in a couple episodes. It's always so cool to see that and see how he develops these iconic and famous traits of his, um, how, how they came into being. I, I, just, I always find it fascinating. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm rambling. But yeah, it's, it's great.
2: David, within Gotham's first three seasons, we have seen Bruce challenge the Board of Way Enterprises and do other numerous types of betrayals. Yet in some cases, he still sees the good within the people. Does that say more about his willingness to forgive or certain people's ability to change?
0: Wow. Wow. That's a deep question. (laughs) 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 I mean, I think if I deep this one all day, um, I have to think about this one for a second. I I think I think Bruce is very complicated. As any person is, I think that one huge thing that tells us a lot about Bruce's ability to forgive or his his uh, ability to see possible change. Um, in people, is when he doesn't pull the trigger on Max Malone. I'm sorry for anybody who's listening that isn't caught up. That was like almost a year ago, so your fault. I think you're good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, he has the upper hand. He's been obsessing about this moment for uh, a year and a half. Everything he thought about, every every action that he made was so that he could find the man who killed his parents. That was his, That was his sole purpose. That was what all his determination went towards. Um, in the entire first season uh, and the first half of the second season and finally finally he gets this moment and he has the upper hand he's pointing a gun at the man who killed his parents, the man that ruined his life and he has the chance to ruin his and he doesn't pull the trigger and I think he he realizes in that moment that nobody is beyond redemption and I think that's why, honestly I think that's why Batman Never Kills, I think that's why he takes um, the Joker to Arkham um, every time he captures him instead of Snapping his neck, which he could easily do, um, and I think probably it would it would save a lot of lives and it would prevent a lot of destruction, a lot of damage. But Batman has this amazing, like I don't even know what the word is, but yet yeah, this this profound will to to forgive and to see possible change in people, and I think that's something that makes him who he is, and. Bruce is learning that. And I think, actually, like I said, I hinted towards it before, but in a couple episodes, Bruce will will make a huge decision that's along those lines as well.
1: Matter of fact, there's a lot going on in Bruce's life right now. I mean, especially with everything going on with Selena and her mom. And you mentioned him looking for his parents' killer. Where do you think
0: Bruce's focus is right now? I know I think after – I think at the beginning of the season, after everything that happened with Indian Hill – he was super hell-bent on taking down the Court of Owls. He found out there was this secret, secret group. They, he, you know, he, he realizes they may be behind my parents' murder also. He wants to bring everybody to justice. Um, I think as of, as of that point, all his detective work had, has been on figuring out who killed his parents and bringing them to justice. And so he finds out, at the end of season two, he finds out about this secret council, the secret court that, um, that is controlling Gotham behind the scenes. Um, in the shadows mysteriously, and he wants to bring them down. Once he kind of makes a deal with the devil in episode two, again, if if, if, you're, if you're not caught up on Gotham, I'm going to go through a lot of stuff right now, so you should probably turn it off right now. He makes a deal with the devil, and he his, his focus kind of, he doesn't have anything to do anymore, because in order to keep his loved ones safe, he has to stop his investigation, and that's all he's been doing for the past two years. And so I think he kind of has this free time, and um, that he never really experienced before, which leads him to do some more fun things, like take things to the next level with Selena. I think that's kind of what he's what he's been focusing on since then. Um, then later on, a couple of episodes later, he comes in contact, you know, with the whole thing with Ivy and um, meets this, this Whisper gang. And so his investigation into the Court of Owls yet again continues and resumes. And I think that's where he's at right now. Um, and I think he's he's really focused on... Bringing them down, but also, I mean, this whole thing with Selena um, will also be consuming for him for the next couple episodes. But yeah, I think I think that's where it's at right now. <laughs>
2: I'm glad you brought up the Court of Owls, David, because in this recent week's episode, a little more was revealed about what Bruce and Selena stole from the Court of Owls. So, without spoiling anything, what can you tell us about the artifact, and if and how the court will respond?
0: Well, the artifact, as you know, is something that the court. Desperately wants to keep in their possession. Um, it's, it has the ability to destroy them. Now, what exactly that means, I don't even know fully. So I, I couldn't even hint towards it because I I, I don't even fully comprehend it um, as of now. And the way the court will respond, well, I mean, the court's going to respond not well. <laughs> they they know he's they know Bruce is investigating with them and investigating them, and by by the time we come back from our second break, um, in the spring, they're gonna do something to him that will change his life forever. And it's going to be traumatic. It's going to be it's gonna be a huge if not the biggest moment in his life so far besides his parents' killing. The biggest moment in his life so far besides his parents' killing
1: We're talking to David Mazoos, of course. Bruce Wayne of Gotham on Fox. Make sure you're watching every Monday night at eight o'clock. And now speaking of Gotham, we actually talked to Drew Powell earlier on in the season, David, and if there is any one person on the show that he hasn't worked with that much, he said he wanted to do more scenes with you. As a matter of fact, he went on to describe this scene where Bruce and Butch are having a drive somewhere on a road trip. So I know. How do, be, 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 be be how do you think that would go? How
0: do you think that would go? Yeah, how do you think that would I go? And is there hilarious. anyone you'd like it, to work? I think, with I think more? we should do it right now. <laughs> I think it should be a spinoff series.
3: <laughs> so, so you want the you
1: want the the Bruce and Butch hour maybe, maybe on um, on Fox dot com or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah exactly Fox.com driving with Butch and Bruce <laughs> <laughs> driving through Gotham driving through the nice neighborhoods the bad neighborhoods seeing all kinds of shady figures
1: we need to find those nice neighborhoods in Gotham I know Bruce lives in one we need to find more of those
0: yeah they're, they're not
1: very existent
0: right now uh, Bruce lives in one but I think that's the only one that exists <laughs> and yeah, I, I actually I, I don't think Bruce lives in Gotham I think he lives like on the outskirts of Gotham or something because yeah, we, al- we always refer to like you know, like when when Alfred's like, "Oh yeah, I was I was in Gotham today." You know, he, from, he lives in Nice, Gotham, kind of like Long Island, It's the New York City.
2: I'm happy that you mentioned Alfred David because throughout the comics and other forms of entertainment, Alfred has been mostly portrayed as part of Bruce's team and rarely as his guardian. What do you makes Alfred and Bruce's bond on Gotham so special and charming? And also,
0: what's it like filming the training scenes with Sean Pertwee? Oh God. They're so much fun, and Sean is like, he, he's, I mean, both of us, we get so excited, and it's, it's so much fun. Like, we, we just, we, I, those scenes are my favorite scenes ever to film. When I, like, I'll be reading a script, and he'll say, you know, all right, Bruce and Alfred are training. I, I just, I, I jump up and down just then, just when I'm reading the script, because there's so much fun to shoot. I know Sean's going to bring it, um, and we, we, just, we just have a blast doing those. What makes their relationship so special and so charming the other question. I think, I think it's the fact that we've never seen... I mean, we all know that Alfred raised Bruce when you're reading the comic books. You know that um, they have this very special relationship. But you never actually see how that develops. You never actually see how their relationship evolves from Alfred being the help, Alfred being the guy who makes Bruce's bed in the morning to part of his team in his, in, in his crime-fighting squad you never you never really see that transition, and I think that's what, what we're showing. Their relationship has gone through so many different levels. They've gone through father and son elements. They've gone through, um, and I think I think now they're partners and they're working together, and um, Alfred knows that Bruce is going to continue under, on this path of justice with or without him, um, dangerous or not, and I think it, Alfred just kind of has resigned to the fact that he's going to do it, and Alfred just kind of has to be there for him to protect him as best he can. But I think they have, they have, a, they have a really special relationship. They, they, I mean, Alfred is the only person, and I just realized this a couple days ago, actually. Alfred is the only person on the show who knew Bruce before the pilot. Yep. Everybody else Bruce meets in the pilot or afterwards, and that, I think that, that, that says a lot. Alfred knows Bruce better than Bruce knows himself. Alfred knows what Bruce is going to do before Bruce does, interestingly. Something massive is going to happen in their relationship that may be very, very destructive further down the season. That's all I'm going to say because I don't want to spoil it, and it's pretty, it's pretty far down down the pipe right now. But it's it's this season. It's after we come back from our spring break, and it's it's going to be massive.
1: Now, David, you've mentioned the spring break. As a matter of fact, on Twitter, you've described these three January episodes that are going to be coming up for Gotham as chaos and absolute mayhem. So without spoiling anything, how much of these three episodes going forward
0: are going to change Bruce, if at all? Oh, like like more than anything ever changed him before, especially the last episode, especially the one that's going to air on January 30th. Bruce will come in contact with, Oof! I don't, I don't know. I don't want to spoil it, but Bruce will, Bruce will uh, be sucked in to the Jerome storyline. He will come in contact with Jerome in a very, very, very intense way, and it's going to change him forever. And it's very, it's very clear how it does. Um, and it, it, it has a lot to do with with the Batman mythos, and it, it brings to light a certain aspect of Batman that we've never really explored before, um, in 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 this capacity at least. Um, with Bruce on the show. It yeah. But, but also, I mean, it, the next two episodes are filled with filled with Jerome filled with chaos. I mean, Jerome is crazier than ever right now. He, he, he comes back and he's just more psychotic than he's ever been. So um, it's, it's a lot of, it's going to be, it's going to be absolute. Like, like I said on Twitter, I guess it's going to be absolute man. It's going to be absolutely crazy.
2: Before we get you out of here, David, you posted an Instagram video of you performing box jumps. So, if in order to drive the Batmobile on the show you had to perform either a hundred box jumps or drink a sardine smoothie, which would you choose
0: and why? Mmm. You know, I'm gonna have to go to the smoothie because I was just chugging. Really? Wow! Plug, I chug my nose and plug it down. Hundred box jumps. I, I see. I, I, the sardine smoothie could be done in a matter of seconds. I could just chug it and get it down there. Maybe throw it up later, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the box dumps, a hundred of them. That's gonna take. That's gonna be like a good, a good five ten minutes. I'd rather not live through that.
1: Can't really blame me there, but what we do want to live through is every episode of Gotham. It's on Fox, eight o'clock every Monday yes. night. Of course, Gotham going to be going all through January with some intense episodes, then coming back in April once again. So you don't want to miss any of it. It's David Mazouz, Bruce Wayne himself. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: With all respects to David, I don't know if I can down a a. a smoothie of sardines. I don't think I can do that, man. I, I might, because I hit the gym a lot. I know David does too, but I, I might have to go with the box jumps.
1: Yeah, I, I think that we're not counting how thick this is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thickness and the and tiny you have bones to, and stuff.
2: And I should have made it clear, you have to drink all of it. Oh, like, I think he got that. Oh, I think he got that, I think yeah. he understood that, because he's like, well, it could be over in 10 seconds. I mean, we're talking Wendy's frosty thick.
1: Yeah, and you're not going to want to dip your fries in this thing. <laughs> no, you There's can't. no what? way. It's going to be more like a paste than it's going to be a smoothie. That's for sure. But you know what I really love about Gotham, especially this season, is that
2: it's not like kicked up a notch, but everybody is moving at a faster pace to who they really become. Nigma becomes, you know, we're going to see him in this Riddler Cost. They've been teasing uh, that for uh, future future shows and stuff like that. Uh, we have you know the whole Penguin's downfall. Everything happened with Bruce and Selena. Everybody's starting to starting to kind of okay. We're on season three. We're gonna kind of kick up the pace a little bit and accelerate these people towards what they become. And it's fascinating. It's really dark. It's really fascinating. It's really fun to watch.
1: Not only that, but did you catch that? Did 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 David really say we're gonna get a Bruce Wayne Joker meeting? If, assuming Jerome is the Joker going yeah. to get that is it, did i hear that right because if that's the case like a pre-batman bruce Wayne joker even encounter is pretty interesting yeah man like
2: it's just it's really really fascinating you know to see where they're going with this and and god i think is one of the best shows on television i think it's one of the best shows actually it's probably one of the best shows on fox you know between that and lucifer it's just the DC slate on Fox Television between those two shows has just been phenomenal. I think
1: they own Monday, basically. Yeah. I mean, with obviously once ten o'clock rolls around, that's when Timeless comes on in NBC. But uh, they own Monday from the hours of eight to ten, basically. You you have that's appointment television. You've got to be there between eight and ten on Fox to watch Gotham and Lucifer because both of them are just kicking ass right now. And speaking of kicking
2: ass, we kick ass on social media as well. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash down and nerdy. You can also hit us up on Twitter at down and nerdy seven five seven. I'm at Merc with one arm. The one is spelled out on both Twitter, Instagram, and yeah, actually, you know what? I started my own Twitch channel too. I've started streaming games. Uh, I start I streamed actually this week. I streamed Dishonored two, got my ass kicked in it, and then I played Final Fantasy fifteen, started kicking its ass. So a nice little little mix there. But if you want to know what I'm going to be streaming again, my channel, of course, is, again, Merc with one arm. Same thing it is spelled out on Instagram and Twitter. I'm going to be streaming Uncharted 4, and my plan is actually to stream at least twice a week.
1: I feel like I'm Bill
2: Belichick. I'm not on the
1: instant chat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not on the twatch or anything. Uh, I feel that's how I feel right now because I just have a Twitter page. I'm at James Ace Witham on Twitter. That's W I T H A M, and maybe when uh, my son gets a little older, I'll get a Twitch page or maybe I'll find time for Instagram at some point. But for now, just on Twitter at James Ace Witham. Well, I think you actually need a PS four to actually stream. How so. on, then there's that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry to burst your balloon there. Oh man. But as always, nerds, pray safe combo greeting. Always back on board your comics.